Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're on to the final month of the year, which seems crazy to me. Uh, but it's December 6th, 2022, and we're going to be talking about the DC titles that are coming out today. Pretty solid week. Nothing that blew me away. A couple things that I thought were, I don't know, maybe a stretch in terms of believability, but at the same time, it's superhero, so is any of it believable? Um, did spend the weekend at Los Angeles Comic Con, uh, which was pretty cool. I encourage everybody to go listen to the episode that dropped yesterday about Ardbeg Scotch Whiskey and comics. It's not necessarily an intersection that you would expect. Like, what the heck do comics and whiskey have in common? But I can answer that. I, I drink whiskey and read comics at the same yeah. time. So I'm, I, well, there's, I, yeah, <laughs> there's many people that do that. Uh, and I was talking <laughs> to the people from Ardbeg and I was saying that. But in terms of like the art form of creating whiskey and the art form of comics, there's a lot more in common there than you might think. So oh. definitely I, I, check it out. And I, I'm not yeah. saying that only because I got to drink free scotch. Um, it, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Also, I had dinner with Jeremy Adams. Uh, so Jeremy, oh, for nice. thanks for the hang. That was uh, epic. Does, does, does he get funnier when he's been drinking or is he, is he just as jovial? Uh, you know what? He, yeah, Jeremy's Jeremy. Uh, I think he had to drive, so I think he had an iced tea. None, oh. none, of, us really, none of us were really partaking uh, that night, unlike the night before at the Art Big Party. But, but yeah, it was it was great to to hang out with uh, with Jeremy. He'll be back on the show soon for one of the twelve days of the Comic Source episodes. So look forward to that. And yeah, there were probably things that we discussed that are not for you know public knowledge. We don't want to spoil. Um, but uh, I will share that he said. The plans for Linda to be pregnant, like he knew like from the beginning that that was a, a path he was going to head down. So, yeah, we'll talk about all that when the, when the time is right, when he comes on the, the show. But, yeah, it was a great show. If anybody was there uh, and I didn't get a chance to see you, sorry for that. I did have a few listeners come up and say hi, which is always weird when somebody recognizes my voice and comes up. Um, but, yeah, it was a good, good show. So that's it for cons for the year for me. Uh, probably – Probably won't do another con till um, WonderCon in April. So, uh, anyway, Rocky, what did you think about the uh, the week of DC Comics that was, what? or that is, or is about to be? You mean uh, the well, the week of December sixth uh, coming up here is. Uh, I, I was I was disappointed. Uh, there's only two that I really uh, I thought were. Uh, decent the rest were i think very mediocre to be honest I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to dc in 2023 uh but you know i gotta say there's some there's some ones that i'm just consistently not they're not really they're just very meh to me and we'll we'll, we'll get into it but uh you know fortunately there's batman and uh, uh batman chip sardowski and tom king is hitting it out of the park with uh, gotham city year one issue three i thought and um yeah, but beyond that, I the rest were sort of meh to me. But well, I guess we'll talk about it. But I'm curious to hear. Yeah, let's, too, so. yeah, let's let's kick it off with with Batman 130 from the aforementioned Chip Zdarsky as the writer, Jorge Jimenez on art, Tame More on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. You know, this was hinted at. Um, the big event, the big moment in this book, um. Anybody that knows anything about DC Comics and Batman in particular knows that Batman's not dead. Batman is not dead, but yet that is what they want us to believe. There's <laughs> no way DC kills Batman. Um, Twice in one year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not going to happen. But 
my and that's not even i mean that was kind of a roll your eyes moment for me i'm like really here we go again supposedly batman is dead um and it might just be part of his plan right like he, he cannot defeat this fail safe robot that he built um and so apparently last issue when they were battling on the justice league satellite batman did manage to damage uh fail safe in as much as there's like a microscopic hole in his armor now and that allows Batman to introduce new programming through nanites, but he can't, he, he can't just say, okay, go in there nanites and shut failsafe down because he's got very advanced software. And if it sees this new upgrade that the nanites are introducing as a, something foreign, uh, something that's attacking it, something's trying to make a change, it'll do the whole, you know, antivirus thing on your computer and like lock that down. So they instead program the nanites to teach the, uh, the fail-safe android compassion, right? Like Batman's like, that. that's the difference. I'm human. I have compassion. You don't. It doesn't work. And at the end of the day, the uh, fail-safe kind of struggling, compassion, compassion, he kills Batman. He says, I was being compassionate by killing him. I, you know, the argument can be made and that's a, uh, a conversation for another day. I'm not going to get into that. But the point being that maybe Batman knew it wasn't going to work and thought, well, the way I actually stop Failsafe is to convince Failsafe that he succeeded and I am dead. And then he'll stop. Where he's going now, what he's going to do, we don't actually know. And so that part, again, a little cliched and a little tropey, but I guess it kind of worked. What didn't work for me is the first half of the issue. We know at the end of the previous issue, Batman was just out in outer space, right? Like the Justice League satellite had exploded. He tried to get away. The ship he was flying was damaged, and he's just out there. Now, first of all, I don't care what kind of Kevlar, body armor, blah, 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 the bat suit has that he wears. It is not protecting him in outer space where it's absolute zero. Like, have you ever seen the, the suits that the astronauts wear? They have heaters running through them. It's super insulated, what have you. Nothing Batman wears, which is skin tight and doesn't even make sense in terms of it really being <laughs> armored the way it's supposed to, nothing he's wearing is going to prevent him from the rigors of space, right? And he's got like this just little plexiglass thing. Like, no, it's not – his suit is not airtight either. It just – it was so incredibly far-fetched. And then – and that's just him being alive in space, right? <laughs> yeah. He goes to the, the craft and he gets the oxygen from it and somehow he patches it into his suit oxygen. Whatever. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. Then on top of that, he salvages one of the the rockets, one of the propulsion rockets from this ship that's destroyed and somehow rigs up that he can control it manually by pressing a button and accelerate up to 430,000 miles an hour, but can still hold on to this rocket engine. <laughs> like he, the guy does not have superpowers. That's what we're always told, right? Like the reason Batman is so cool is because he's just one of us. Anybody could do it. You know, his superpower is a big bank account. But yet he's holding on to this rocket. No, that's not a thing. But yet he rides this rocket through the atmosphere, doesn't burn up, yeah. and manages to land near the Fortress of Solitude, which apparently the Fortress of Solitude is back at the North Pole again. It's not in the Bermuda Triangle. Missed that memo. Uh, but yeah, he manages to survive a re-entry trip just wearing his bat suit. Like this was so stupid and so ridiculous. I... I I almost stopped reading. It was that bad. Yeah. Like, let's assume 
let's assume for the sake of argument, he's got these huge amounts of adrenaline running through him and he can actually hold on to this rocket going 430,000 miles an hour and he can breathe and the bat suit's not going to, you know, expose him to the elements. And, you know, we're making a lot of leaps here, but let's just assume all that. It never explains. How does he know there's all these computers, right? At NASA and all these other uh, spacefaring organizations that have to calculate, you know, a lot of memory in terms of, of RAM for these computers to calculate the exact angle that you have to hit the Earth atmosphere, right? We've all seen the movies, whatever. If you hit it too shallow, you'll bounce off and go flying off into space. If you're too steep, you burn up because it's, you know, extra friction. You have to enter at just the right angle. And the analogy that I always heard was if you if you assume the Earth is the size of a basketball, the, that, that re-entry corridor is about the thickness of a sheet of paper. And you're telling me Batman just knows, Bruce Wayne just knows how exactly, not, not only what that angle is and everything that goes into it, but he's able to control it manually. First of all, he knows it and he can correct by firing his grappling gun and can control it with, you know, with that precision and knows what it is and make all these calculations instantaneously in his head. No, man. No, no. A hundred thousand times. No. This was the one of the stupidest things I've ever read in a comic. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think about this. I, I hated it from the moment it started happening. First of all, you maybe can survive maybe I think like 30 seconds out in space if he's out in space in his bat suit or whatever. So he, he needed to get to shelter right away. And when that didn't happen, you just lost me. And then, you know, and I know like you see the oxygen level and the times going on. And, and that's the other thing, right? This took hours. He had 12 hours of oxygen and that was how long all this was going to take. <laughs> and he keeps his mental faculties about him and, and performs this incredibly impossible feat. No, I'm sorry. This like we, we've had conversations on this podcast and a lot of other people have about kind of the power creep of Batman and and how, you know, they keep trying to top themselves and go, you know, one crazier thing after another after another because you're kind of running out of th things to do. And yeah, at this point, saying Batman doesn't have superpowers is just stupid because you clearly have him doing things, things that no actual human could do. And this is like the cherry on top of the Sunday. I don't know that anybody can top this. This was so bad. Like, I get it. You're trying to do something cool and be like, oh, but, you know, Batman is the best pinnacle of humanity, blah, blah, blah. Like there's that. And then there's no, this is so impossible. And again, I get it. I'm reading a comic about superheroes and guys who can fly and have all these superpowers or whatever. But I can kind of buy that because, you know, they it's it's science fiction. But Batman is supposed to be human, right? It's just supposed to be technology. And if he had some kind of bat computer that calculated his stuff, whatever, never mentions that. So I'm just going that this was one of the most far-fetched. No, not one of the most. This was the most far-fetched thing I've ever read in a comic. And I hated every second of it. <laughs> and if you really want Batman to be dead, like he is in the end when he you know, pulls failsafe, failsafe succeeded. Batman should be dead. Bruce Wayne should be dead. Like yeah. this, you know, and, and again, no, nothing personal against Zdarsky. I'm sure he was trying to do something super cool and show just how smart Bruce Wayne is, but there's smart. And then there's literally you're, you're asking us to believe something that is so impossible. It like, I can't even 
I can't even buy it for a, not even a moment. It, it just, I hated it. I really, in case you guys didn't realize, I think about coming across. <laughs> how do you feel about that, Chase? <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't. I just couldn't stand it. Like uh, right, right from the start of reading this comic, I was just shaking my head the whole time because as it goes on, you know, like he's accelerating, he's holding, it, then he's decelerating the rocket, and he's holding on. It was just so unbelievable just unbelievable and not in a good way so well uh, and, uh, i think i think tim i think uh, tim drake feels the same way you do because when he gets back down uh, he asks him what what happened to you and then he, he tells robin he goes i fell from the moon and even robin looks completely stunned he's speechless i don't, I don't even think robin believes that was, good, that was a good line i'll give chip credit that was a good line but just it's again it's so unrealistic like i can't well, that's the central conceit of theory. So, I'm sure the average comic fan is not going to realize just how impossible that feat is, but they'll just think it's cool and hey, that's great. But I, unfortunately, I, I guess I'm too smart for my own good, knowing you know, watching shows like The Expanse, being a huge science fiction guy and a space guy, just yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Batman never gets back to Earth because his body burns up in the atmosphere. Well, I was just going to say, Sardaski's Batman, I mean, any writer who approaches Batman, ultimately you could tell in the storyline that they tell, they either choose to make him an uber Batman who can who can do no wrong, who's, who's like super powerful, or they, they make him more vulnerable to getting injured and what have you. This is clearly uber Batman. He's a super genius. He builds sail, fail safe. And I think Sardaski's hoping that if you can believe that Batman can build fail safe, somebody who's capable, Batman can build a robot that can take out the Justice League and is more powerful than Amazon. Amazon. I, I mean, B Batman is super genius. He's super brilliant. And of course, he can literally, with just his bat suit on and his utility belt, can make it back from the moon with no oxygen and do all the calculations in his head for rear entry and angles and all that jazz. And all in the span of a single 30-page uh, comic book. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I share your thoughts. I don't share your conclusion, though, because against all rational judgment i love this issue i i thought this was an adrenaline rush i thought it was fun i thought it was ridiculous batman being able to come it back cut back but for some reason i laughed out loud when robin's when he tells robin i fell from the moon and of course he did you know batman's playing it straight you know straight face uh i thought it was just to me it's consistent with the with the absurd premise that batman can build a robot that can take out the justice league which i still i mean fail safe even defeats superman again you you haven't given your thoughts on the second part of the issue uh, and I'll, I'll let you do that obviously but uh you know in the second half of the issue when superman does approach uh fail safe once again it's just assumed that fail safe can defeat anyone i mean this is just absurd i i can't believe superman would be, lose to fail safe a second time. I just, I just don't buy it. So there, there's this thing on multiple levels falls down in that respect. But funnily enough, the the moon thing, uh, it's, it's uber Batman. So I just sort of shake my head and you know have a drink and uh, you know and accept it. But uh, how do you think it ended though? How did you find the second half? Yeah, I mean, again, you're right about. I mean, super, super, Batman goes to Superman. Hey, I have a plan. Whatever. He's in armor. He should be shielded from the kryptonite. But you're right the ludicrousness of uh, failsafe defeating Superman again. Like, why would Superman even get within close enough distance to fight him hand-to-hand? -hand? Why not just fire his uh, heat vision at him? Like, I don't get it. Like, go way up high so you can have a direct, you know, dire uh, direct um, 
line of sight with the sun. So you're absorbing radiation, you know, yellow sunlight radiation, and just transferring that into your heat vision and just melting failsafe into slag. Well, because because the writer doesn't want that to happen. That's basically yeah. <laughs> of course. Wait, could Superman? If somebody's listening, going, could Superman even do that? Well, if the writer wants him to, he could because Zdarsky wanted Batman to survive a fall from the moon, and that worked. So, I mean, sky's the limit, right? You could do anything. So, yeah, I just I thought it was kind of silly. Um, but again, if Batman, if Batman's true plan is, hey, I'm going to convince Failsafe that I'm dead, so Failsafe shuts itself down or what have you, then hey, I mean that that's maybe what it should have done all along for being the smartest guy and able to survive reentry with you know with nothing but the costume on his back. Um, you think he would have figured that out sooner? Let me you know make this convince this guy that I'm dead, and then he'll stop attacking instead of month. You know, six, was it six months he was hiding in Atlantis? Can yeah, come up with that idea sooner. So. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There are different sort of takes or directions to go on Batman. And Zdarsky's clearly going with the Uber Batman, which is so interesting to me, right? Because we talked in the beginning, we didn't know what to expect from this run about his Daredevil run and how grounded it is and how kind of believable it is. I'm sure Zdarsky, well, I shouldn't speak for him, but I would never expect Zdarsky to write a story where Daredevil could fall from the moon and survive. Uh, And yet... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are so many similarities just in terms of, of level of powers, right? Like yeah. technically Daredevil has superpowers that Batman doesn't even have. So you would think that he would be more likely to survive a fall from the moon in the hands of Zdarsky. But I just don't see Zdarsky ever writing a story like that because he, it, it does seem like he wants to keep Daredevil more grounded, more street, more more real, for lack of a better term. With Batman, apparently not. He's going to keep pushing the envelope. So – uh, the backup story, I Am a Gun finale, written also by Zdarsky. Leonardo Romero is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors, Clayton Cullen letters. I thought it was okay. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's Zdarsky's reasoning for why Batman doesn't kill. Um, and I, I don't know. In a way, maybe this is even more unbelievable than Batman falling from the moon and surviving. You know, when the Joker is about to die, he's like, not on my watch. Not even the Joker, you know, even though it would save – countless lives nobody dies on my watch that might be you know even more ludicrous uh for somebody who wants to fight crime than uh surviving a fall from the moon but um ultimately i don't again like a lot of these backups this is not necessary it's not new information um but the art's cool and seeing uh the batman of zur and that purple costume purple and red costume is interesting so i thought it was okay what do you think about the backup uh, well, first I want to talk about the five and give my comments on the first one yet. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. The, the the central story itself on on failsafe. I the thing that bothered me. Well, and it's it's a minor little nitpick, but it's 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 the lack of giving any kind of agency to Superman. I mean, <laughs> Superman can think uh, at a million million thoughts per second, or he can think at super speed too. Uh, at least he can in in most iterations. Superman is also extremely intelligent. I have uh, I have find it very very hard to believe that Superman in battling failsafe a second time. I mean, I mean, bear in mind, Superman knows that if he doesn't stop failsafe, Batman's going to die. And let's make no mistake here: Superman fails to save Batman. 
Robin fails to save Batman. The entire Justice League, all the heroes of the planet fail to save Batman. That's what you have to swallow in order to accept this storyline by Sardaski. And it's like literally the only person that can save Batman is Batman. And interestingly enough, at the end, uh, you mentioned how the nanites were Batman's master plan to defeat Failsafe was to implant nanites into Failsafe so that Failsafe becomes, experiences compassion and will choose to experience compassion. It sh- we should point out that at the, the final scene, it appears that Batman has, has not been incinerated. He's in fact been teleported because he, he shows up what appears to be in a, in a back alley somewhere. And so maybe Failsafe didn't kill him. Maybe Failsafe, maybe that programming, maybe those nanites did have an impact on Failsafe and Batman has been transported uh, elsewhere. And uh, so we don't know. So the jury's still out on that, but it's... Uh, well, if I, yeah, I did, I did think about that. We don't know where he is. Um, the only thing I would add is perhaps he's been sent back in time to save his parents. So if he doesn't need to exist... That's a good. That's a, that's a good angle too. The ultimate, yeah, the yeah. ultimate compassion. So then they're gonna have to send uh, Booster Gold back to get him, and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but well, uh, he, survived, he survived a fall from the moon. I'm sure he can figure I'm, out a way. I'm sure he can. He has on him to time travel. Yeah, the power but, of his mind or something. Right. Uh, the artist Jose Jimenez. The art is fantastic, and it, it's really that. What what really uh, uh, the the moon when he's falling from the moon, it, I I could actually feel the heat of reentry on Batman the way that uh, the way the Jordy I think it was uh, Jordy Blair in the colors, uh, the 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 fire around Batman as he's entering Earth's orbit and uh, it, it it's very well illustrated it's very well done it, it does feel epic and it it feels it heightens how just real it felt and that that it's done in such a realistic way or at least visually it look realistic to me even though it's a ridiculous situation that <laughs> it is like oh my god how could anybody survive that it actually heightened the unbelievability of it because it was so bloody well drawn but uh, so it's a double-handed compliment or an underhanded insult whatever the hell it is but uh, uh yeah so all in all mixed feelings about the story but it was kind of, it was it was kind of cool to read and it was uh, even to the point it annoyed me it was in a good way uh the backup was i love the art in the backup but I agree with you. Excuse me. I agree with you. It's, it's largely un- unnecessary and unneeded. We we already knew about the Batman of Zerina. But for new readers who aren't familiar with the Batman of Zerina, it's sort of just, you know, sort of, it actually gave a nice little origin restating why Batman wears the yellow symbol in order to uh, draw enemy file toward his uh, fortified chest plate, which is uh, something that... Uh, uh, originated with the iteration and the reaction to uh, the Batman of Zerina, uh, in uh, part of his per- persona. So it was, uh, it was not bad. So for first-time readers who aren't familiar with Grant Morrison's run, it's probably a, it probably is good good for that reason. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, okay, up next we have uh, more Batman because of, you know, DC Comics. Batman and the Joker, the Deadly Duo, Part 2. Uh, story and art by Mark Silvestri, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Troy Petrie. Um, yeah, it's just a black label book. It's been a long time in in the making by Silvestri. Um, I don't, I don't really have that much to say about it. Um, I I love <laughs> Silvestri's art in terms of how visceral it feels. Uh, this is a Gotham City that feels like Gotham City, you know, run down and dark and dreary um 
and I'm not a big fan of uh, of the aesthetic of, of like Tim Burton style movies, Gotham in that first Batman, but first Batman uh, in 1989 Batman film. But it, it, you can't argue that it doesn't feel like what a real life Gotham would feel like in terms of being kind of seedy and and run down and dreary. And Silvestri's Gotham City captures that really, really well. Plus, the guy's just great at drawing action. Um, and his work always feels very textured with all the cross-hatching that he does. So visually, it's great. Um, Story-wise, I mean, it's Batman and Joker. So does it feel new? Does it feel different? No, <laughs> it doesn't feel new or different at all. It's Batman and Joker. And God knows we have more than enough Batman and Joker stories. However... Um, I did like the idea that Silvestri puts forth here about some sort of genetic tampering where human DNA, human, um, material has been fused with microfilament and microfibers and like cutting edge of technology in terms of, um, of that sort of thing. And what new species or organism or life form might take. Um, from that. So uh, I am curious about that. I just, I really just wish they'd chosen somebody else other than Joker. There are hints that the only reason this worked is because Joker's DNA is somehow different or special. Um, I mean, again, Joker's not supposed to have any superpowers, but I mean, maybe his body chemistry is different from following all the chemicals. I mean, can't, can't think about it too much. Um, but at the end of the day, the reason to pick up this book is for the Sylvester art. Um, because it's fantastic. And, and there's little things in his art that are great. Um, like there's a scene where they're in the bat cave and the Joker has been, so Bruce had been bitten by one of these drones that's infected. One of these beings that apparently is made of, of, um, human biological material, as well as uh, this tech technological microfiber, what have you. Uh, and Bruce has been out for, for quite a while, 14 hours. And apparently they left the Joker kind of tied up in the Batmobile all that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, yeah. Which is, leads to some funny situation or what have you. But uh, my point about the visuals is when Bruce and Alfred and Dick approach the Batmobile, it's just sitting there parked. Like even like the rims of the Batmobile have little bats that are like embedded in them. And it's little detail like that from Silvestri that, uh, that's just really cool. Like he's, you can see why it's taken him so long. Like he's sparing no detail. He's given his all in these pages. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's okay. I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to read it. Sylvester, uh, Sylvester's writing as well. And, and like I said, it doesn't feel like the most original story at this point. I think it would be nearly impossible, if not wholly impossible for a writer to write a Batman Joker story that I felt was, wow, I've never read anything like this before. Um, because there are so many of them and there's only so many avenues you can go down. Um, but it's fun to see Mark's take and the art makes it worthwhile. So what did you think? I, I actually enjoyed this and it, it, it felt, it felt like Batman about Batman continuity about f 15 years ago when this was supposed to come out or whenever it was. I, I really like the characterizations here. I like at the very beginning, uh, I like at the very beginning, it shows a, it shows, uh, uh, Jim Gordon, who's of course been kidnapped. Batman is looking for him and, and, uh, Joker might have some ideas to where Jim Gordon is, but whoever it is that's trying to kill the Joker, 
Joker and Batman is also looking for him, and that's why Joker and Batman have to team up. Uh, Gordon is doing his best, even while he's a prisoner. Gordon is being heroic, and they're being, you know, uh, he's an, another person who's trapped with him is a guy named Carl, and his his children are being threatened, and and uh, and they're basically telling Carl to basically cut to cut into the body of Jim Gordon, and so it's really kind of sick and disgusting. But Jim tell Gordon tells him it's okay, just buy time. He'll find us. He'll find us. Meaning Batman will save the day. So Jim Gordon has enough faith in Batman to believe that Batman will, will find them at the end of the day. Uh, also, uh, even the characterization of Harvey Bullock. This was uh, at a time when those when those relationships between Harvey Bullock, Batman, Gordon were different. Harvey Bullock in this issue even tries to get closer to Batman or is trying to trying to tell Batman, "Look, I know you can you can trust me," you know. And 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 even the the Selena Kyle here is different as well. Uh, they end up at a they end up at a big uh, a gala and Selena Kyle shows up and we're not really sure what role she's playing in here. Uh, the the Joker clones, uh, as you said, they're whatever it is. The, when they bite into you, they seem to deliver some sort of virus combined with some sort of other sort of solid like tech or some. Uh, there's some sort of. Uh, Sophistica- sophistication to the to the virus that, that you mentioned and it's it's interesting exactly where it's going is it is it different because it's related to the joker we're not sure but it's um it's interesting i i i think the art's fantastic i love the art i just want to give one scolding to dc we get this beautiful second cover uh by mark silvestri why on earth are we getting one Covered by different artists. Why, why? Why are we getting covers by different artists when this is this is to promote Mark Silvestri? He's the he's the artist. He's the writer. But we get one, two, three, four, uh, five, six, six different artists, and then this, finally on one of them we, we get Silvestri. He, he, he at least gets two out of the whatever nine covers it is. Just ridiculous. Enough with the covers already. And if you're going to have it, if you're promoting an artist, story and art by Mark Silvestri, at least have the decency to have every single alternate cover be by Mark Silvestri. That's just my little rant about that. But uh, I thought, uh, I I love... I don't like the direction that the current Batman's going in terms of his personality. Uh, this is this is a topic for another day, but I think they're softening Batman up. They're softening him up. They're taking away his hard edge, his exterior. exterior. They're sort of softening him up a little bit. They're, they definitely they, they're going to be doing that. They've done that already in some of these issues that we're going to be reading in the months to follow here. And I've got some issues with that, but I, I like this a, a, a harder edge Batman, more exciting Batman, and drawn just looking kick ass. But uh, you know this. Uh, again, not bad, not bad. A nice little callback to the to uh, DC's past. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, I I don't disagree with you about the softening of Batman, but I don't I don't mind it necessarily. Batman he wasn't always as hard as he has been for the last twenty years. Basically, since Dark Knight Returns, you know, you can lay the blame of a lot of this at the at the feet of Frank right. Miller. He might or, be or give him the credit, depending on your point of view. But, uh, but I, and I get what you're saying. The world's different now than it was. But he didn't always have to be a jerk. You know, he, Batman yeah. wasn't always a jerk. I, I'm still a fan. Like, go back and read the stuff from the 70s and early 80s. He wasn't a jerk, and he was still just as capable and just as formidable. He probably couldn't survive a fall from the moon. Yeah, but that's what I was going to say. I, I, I enjoyed. I, I just enjoyed that Bruce Wayne more. So. Anyway, uh, speaking of er- early days of Gotham City, Gotham City Year One, number three, written by Tom King, pencils by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Jordy Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, you mentioned this as a standout for you, so give us your thoughts. 
I just, uh, I just think, you know, Tom King has just, uh, just done an amazing job here. He's just hit this out of the park. Uh, first of all, uh, if you're going to have, if you're going to have variant covers, okay. The, the variant covers here are excellent. I love that. Uh, Frank Cavill does an f- amazing, uh, alternate cover. There's another one. I don't even know who all these artists are because they, they apparently they don't think it's important to sign their work uh, in something uh, approaching the English language. Shame on them. But in any event, gorgeous uh, alternate covers on this. Uh, this continues the story of uh, sort of uh, Tom King's take on the, the Lindbergh kidnapping, except the, the, the child kidnapped is uh, Helen, uh, Helena, or Helen Wayne, the daughter of uh, the Waynes in the 19... 19- 60s or what have you and we know from uh, we know from previous issues that or the last issue ended with them thinking with slam bradley the uh, private detective thinking that uh, uh thinking that maybe they were going to find uh helena wayne only to find out that it was all a setup and this mysterious woman that he's been communicating with outside the waynes basically set him up and took off with the money and this issue involves slam bradley uh, just having a flashback, we get more information on the on the past of Slam Bradley. And remember that Slam Bradley in this story, he's telling in the present day, he is telling Batman the story of Gotham City's past, in, in, and he's telling Batman this story of of. Of, of course, his his grandparents and then the kidnapping of Helena Wayne and and the story that he doesn't he that 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 even Bruce Wayne likely would not know, and he's and it's it's a very impactful story and we get we get we get flashbacks into Slam Bradley's life as a police officer how he he got fed up himself with police corruption and police brutality and it's one of the reasons why he was kicked off the force and one of these his old partners that was there on the day that he got kicked off the force by def, by basically protecting. Uh, uh, a suspect that they were questioning ends up being one of the one of the goons that the guards that the Waynes hired that uh, that uh, Sam Bradley is is there and and Bruce uh, and pardon me the Mister um, uh, uh, I can't remember the the the, the, na- the original name of the uh, the Waynes here the the parents uh, it's uh, Celeste Celeste Wayne and I'm not sure. Constance, right? Constance, right? Constance, and what's the husband's name? Dwayne. Uh, I can't think of it right it, now. Yeah, in any event, it's not uh, not not all that important. But uh, he's he's all distraught, and he's thinking that his daughter's still alive. And Constance Wayne takes Slam aside and says, "Look, I'm going to hire you privately, and a mother just knows." She says, "A mother just knows. I believe my daughter is dead." But I want you to find her anyway. Finish this. Finish what you start. She gives him ten thousand dollars, and and he, he and Slam said it's, it's in Slam's character. He would have done it for free. He he needs to see this through. He needs to find. Uh, he needs to find her, and ultimately uh, he. What I love about this work, where Tom King shines here, is that he shows Slam Bradley being a detective, being an actual detective. And I got to tell you, in early issues of Batman, a lot of the criticisms against uh, Tom King is that he wasn't, sometimes he wasn't always great at actually showing Batman be a detective. And But he does a really good job here of, slow, of showing Slam Bradley being a detective, being very good and putting the pieces together. And he, he traces, he actually goes from uh, Dan Scott to dance club to, to different parts of the city different parts of Gotham and tracks down where that that woman that mysterious woman who initially approached him was that ends up stealing all the ransom money and he locates her and but it's all all misdirection and while he believes he finds her he he believes she's living at her 
at a particular address. She's not living at the address. Rather, someone else is. So she likely set that up. But he does see in the backyard that he does ultimately end up finding the body of the, the Wayne's daughter. And it's just devastating. And uh, that's really what... Uh, that's really what leads us into uh, that's how the issue ends that so we get this we get all this character we, we see the, the past of 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 Slam Bradley we see the the gravitas the, the, the feeling of loss and emotion by by a grieving mother and we see the tragic end to this and this just it's visceral it's impactful I, I thought is this was just one of my favorite comic books of the week this this was better than the first and second issue and i, I enjoyed those so what do you think yeah so I, I didn't necessarily take it as her not living there she may not be there at, at the time now she's got her money she might be long gone um but certainly you know relatives of her th that are there but yeah uh, slam finds what we assume to be the body um of hope wayne i think you said helena but it's it's hope Hope. Wayne, uh, and yeah, in, in buried in the backyard and you know, the, there's, there's tragedy there and it's, it's pretty dark when you think about it. Um, Hope's father being Patrick. And as we said, the uh, mother being Constance, um, I agree with you. This was the, the best issue of the series so far. I think what it does really well. So the first two issues we've had slam Bradley as kind of the, the really hard nosed pulp detective, certainly inspired by a lot of the things that crime noir type film and, and media that, Tom King loves to uh, to consume, which is fantastic because I think a lot of us that love superheroes and love comics uh, sort of gravitate toward th those type of stories, whether it's, uh, you know, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Picard is uh, being Dixon Hill uh, in those old detective stories or whether you're watching old, you know, black and white movies, Maltese Falcon or what have you. Um, it, it just works. There's a reason that those types of stories have endured. Um, so that's what we've had. Very hard edged, hard nosed slam Bradley in the first couple of issues. But in this one with that, that idea that he would have done it for free, you, you see beneath that exterior, you know, beneath that real hard edge, how much he, how deeply he feels things, right? How much emotion he has and how his heart is broken by the idea that this young, innocent, baby hope wayne has been killed and he believes that justice needs to be served not vengeance rather but justice so uh, i enjoyed that and then obviously again seeing that moment where he kind of flies off the handle here's a baby crying he assumes it's hope i think in the back of his mind he hopes that it's hope and when he gets to the baby's room it's uh, this african-american baby it clearly isn't hope wayne and looks out the window sees uh that there's a spot there's a patch in the backyard it's been recently disturbed dug up and goes and finds a bundle wrapped there. We assume it to be uh, to be hope. So how this is all going to play out, I have no idea. We do know. I mean, it's Gotham City year one in the story that we're reading. Police department is still corrupt, but in a different different way, maybe a more fascist way. Yeah. Um, police brutality and tactics to, to anything to keep the city safe. There's an argument to be made there, right? Like, was this way better? Um, the people that are on the fringes of society are certainly marginalized. You know, that's mentioned time and again, sort of contextually um, about how if you're a person of color or, you know, some kind of minority in, in this Gotham city in the Gotham city of year one, you're, you're exploited and you're stepped on and you're not appreciated. So, you know, eventually Gotham's going to swing toward a more uh, equal place, but at the same time, that equality brings with it crime and opportunity for other um, 
people who don't have the best interests of society at heart. Uh, and obviously the rise of Batman and all those villains. So, you know, you, you can make the argument. Was it better how it used to be when it was safer? Well, it was safer for the white people and it was more prosperous for the white people. So it, it was that better or is it better now? I mean, I think probably there can be an argument on both sides. So it's really interesting to, uh, to think about. And yeah, I agree with you. Tom King's doing a fantastic job in this, uh, in the uh, stories. So. I, I should point out that there's uh there's a scene here that shows the entire, that shows the baby in the crib and it says her name is Helen Wayne. And there she was Helen Wayne, the princess of Gotham city. So maybe she's called hope too. Yeah. I don't know. I could have sworn they called her hope, but maybe I it is Helen right too. I think they but, maybe but not, her. not, not, not Helena, not, not Huntress. That's right. You know, we know this, we know this baby, um, yeah. was killed. I'm, I'm or, maybe, or maybe that bundle is not is not the the, the little baby, and and uh, Slim Bradley's still going to rescue her. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I, I want to give a I want to give a shout out to the art here, Phil Hester. This is amazing. I I this is I'm. I'm I think this is the best art of his career, to be honest. Uh, what he's done at the beginning here, uh, showing the flashback in red, black, black, white, and red, I think just works so well. I think it, it, it and it, it, it really helps it, it, with, with conveying the fact that it's a flashback. And then the, the, the present day scenes, I think it really works well. He does a, it just works. Uh, like I said, it just really sets the mood. I'm wondering if do you, do you find that the arts improved for you or is it, cause I know that you're not normally a Phil Hester fan, but how do you feel about well, the arts issue? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's improved, but I, I did mention this. I think when we talked about issue two, I expected at some point to, for this art to kind of, I don't know, settle in for my, for me, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, and it would be a situation where, when I think about the story, when I think about Gotham City Year One, I won't be able to separate the story from the art. And in that way, that's the way the art works. And that, that's oftentimes the way I feel or, or kind of the experience I have when it's an artist whose style isn't my favorite. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of the same thing with like Riley Rosmo, for example. But if to use to continue that example, it's like if I think about the 12 issue Martian Manhunter series written by Steve Orlando, I, I can't picture that series without Rosmo art. Like, you know, I just can't imagine anyone else having done it other than Riley Rosmo. And that's kind of how I feel about this Gotham city year one. I can't imagine anybody else other than Bill Hester. And that, that happened even with the second issue. Um, like it happened that quick. I can't imagine anybody, but, but Hester doing this. So, yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next up. We have the Joker, the man who stopped laughing. Number three from writer, Matthew Rosenberg. Carmine Dijon Domenico is the artist, Arif Prianto on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, and then there's a backup. It's also written by Rosenberg. Art there is by Francesco Francavilla. Letters by Tom Napolitano. Um, so, yeah, we're still continuing the story of these two Jokers. Don't know which is the real one. Um, I hope we find out at some point. But what did you think? Uh, yeah, I thought we were doing Azrael next. So I'm just uh, bringing it up on the screen. But uh, – no, no. Reason, I didn't have, have Azrael open for some reason, but we'll do that next. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, all right. Let me see here. There we go. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I, I know that uh, a lot of my friends on, on in, in the Slack uh, at Weird Science have been really uh, enjoying this. Uh, this uh, they've 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 been enjoying this two joker story where one of these you know we got this 
fake uh, imposter joker going around that used to be a, a hostage. There was a hostage. This hostage was shot in the head and he was shot in the head uh, during a hostage, actually shot in the head uh, by the joker. And then he, he revives himself or he gets shot in the head by, by some of Joker's goons. And then he wakes up and he thinks he is the joker. And now we're three issues into this and we have this fake Joker going around. One is being attacked by Jason Todd uh, at Gotham Harbor as this story opens up. And then the other uh, Joker is trying to ally himself with the Legion of Doom. And, and you know, I'm, I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure what's going on. And I'm not sh- I, And I still don't understand. I don't understand which Joker is real. And... Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really seeing this. I'm not enjoying this, to be honest with you, as, as much as some people are. I, it's, it's kind of intriguing, but I don't, I'm, there's something about it I'm missing. I've read this twice and I just feel like I'm missing something. There, it has some funny moments. Uh, one thing about, uh, uh, Rosenberg, he does a good job with some of the humor at this point. We have a, we have a joker here who actually ends up in the, in the hospital after he gets, you know, he escapes Jason Todd and Harley Quinn and he throws himself in the, in the, river and he washes a basically he's a couple of guys are ice fishing and they pull him ashore and uh uh he ends up in the hospital and in the hospital uh, a surgeon ends up being you know trying to save the joker and trying to this who i believe is the fake joker has a bullet in his head and needs to be fixed up and 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 that's kind of what this guy does and meanwhile the other joker is with punchline trying to get in goods with with the legion of doom and um and there's a conversation with lex luther and lex you know he's re- this other joker's rejected by the legion of doom and he sort of pouts and walks away and i'm inclined to think this other joker is 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 the fake one maybe but then i'm thinking the other one is so i i'm not sure I, I still feel like I'm missing a central part of the narrative. I'll say this about Matthew Rosenberg. I, I will give him, I, I suspect that on issue four five or six or whatever, some, he's going to reveal something that will make all this make more sense to me. And so I'm not, gonna, I'm not writing this story off yet uh, because I, it does have its moments and I actually enjoy Matthew Rosenberg, write, write His writing most of the time. And, uh, and I've, uh, and there's something about this story that I do find compelling. I'm, I'm really interested now is like, who in the hell is the real Joker here? Why is there two? This one, I mean, this one Joker's in really bad shape. And the other one, uh, the other one, I'm not, who I think is the real one, seems to be not acting how I would normally associate the Joker to act. There's no way that the Legion of Doom, that the Joker would just walk away from the Legion of Doom and be rejected by the Legion of Doom. I can't see that happening. Something is, is off here. Um, but I, I don't, so I don't know. I don't really know exactly where this is, uh, where this is going. I don't, um, so I'm, I'm sort of at a loss, but I, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's this, this particular issue is called, it's not funny anymore. And I'm tempted to say this isn't really compelling anymore. Although I'm kind of interested to see who's the real choker, but I'm kind of a little bit at a loss too. And, um, well, there's a backup too, but I'll let you, you know, you can give your comments on the main story itself.
What do you think? Oh, you're, you're, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry about that. Dogs are going crazy. Uh, you know, you keep saying real Joker, fake Joker. I'm not entirely convinced that that's, that's the case, that there is a real Joker and a fake Joker. We know in the pages of Batman 3 Jokers from uh, Jeff Johns that there are multiple Jokers. So, you know, from the start, I wondered if this was tied into that somehow. And, and oh. that's sort of still still where my head is at, how I think it's all going to play out as we're going to find out. They're, they're, for whatever reason, maybe there's a Joker virus, you know, whatever. Um, but again, it just goes to DC editorial and DC as a whole wanting to take a page out of Marvel's book and beat something to death and shove it down our throats until we're absolutely so sick of it. We get so much Batman. We get so much Joker. It's enough to have one Joker. It's enough to tell a Joker story like once every couple of years. That is more than enough because you know what? We got 50, 60, 75 years of Joker stories to go back and look through if you want more. Because even fans that are, you know, love the Joker, they probably haven't read every single Joker story from the past. So putting out constant Joker content is just not needed in my mind. But this is just a manifestation of that. Multiple Jokers. It's interesting enough, The you know, the one Joker that we see most centrally here, the one that was uh, attempted to be killed by the, the more in-control Joker, if you will, uh, the, the more manic former hostage Joker. Um, I don't know. In, in a lot of ways, he seems to be that side of the Joker that we've had most recently where the insanity is real close to the surface. The, you know, the other Joker, the crime Lord version of, of the Joker seems to be a little more um, evil in a way of, you know, manipulating things and, and kind of Machiavellian and working behind the scenes for, for power, for influence, uh, that sort of thing. Maybe a Joker that's more reminiscent of, of the Joker we had before the killing joke. You can argue which one's more evil. You can argue which one's more, um, formidable you could argue which one's more menacing but they are two different aspects of the joker that we've had in the past so um maybe we'll find out there are two different jokers three different jokers who knows um but it's interesting enough uh the carmine dijon domenico art again he's an artist whose style is in my mind best suited for the flash and he did have a long run on the flash with uh joshua williamson uh, and that goes to just how kinetic and kind of loose his style is. It works here uh, with this kind of maniacal, insane Joker because he is so crazy and wild. And Rocky mentions him going to the hospital, wanting to have uh, himself sort of patched up. And you know, the question could be asked, so why, why, why is he even still up and walking around? He's got multiple bullet wounds. He's got, you know, he, he drowned basically. All of a sudden he can't be, Joker can't be killed. Like he washes up on shore, the the bums that find him think he's dead. Look at the color of his skin. He's probably been in the water for days. Uh, and then, you know, he kind of wakes up. He's got a bullet hole in his head. He has a doctor dig around with forceps in his brain and pull out the bullet um, with his, you know, whole face just covered in blood, unrecognizable even as the Joker, but certainly scary and, and what have you. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, the story is – very reminiscent of that Joker. The story is kind of wild and all over the place. Don't know where it's going. Um, and I'm kind of a little of two minds about it. There's part of me that is like, God, another Joker story. I really don't want to read another Joker story, but you know, credit to Rosenberg that he, 
there's enough mystery here that I'm curious. Like I do, is it two different jokers? Is it somebody who just believes he's a joker? Like who knows? I, I do want to know the answer to that question. So uh, from that aspect, I'm curious. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, there's a backup in this as well, right? Yes, it has yeah. Big Barda in it. Big Barda. <laughs> yeah, Big Barda. That's right. Uh, but but Doctor, I am the Joker. Story by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Francesco Francavilla, letters by Tom Napolitano. Um, these backups in, with Francavilla art, which is you know very much kind of a throwback to the fifties. Personally, I'm not enjoying them. They're completely ludicrous, which does lean into who the Joker is as a character. Um, but they're just they're not working for me. I just don't like the Joker enough to really enjoy them. They're, they're kind of dumb <laughs> to be honest. Like in this one, the Joker gets run over by a train and his body's literally cut in two and yet he doesn't die. So maybe leaning into that idea that the Joker can't be killed based on whatever chemicals run through his body. I suppose not that different than the original, um, night of the living dead, right? Like the zombies. It was yeah. kind of this, uh, these chemicals. Um, but yeah, Professor Pig shows up. They take the, this half half of Joker's body. They forget his his two stooges, if you will, sidekicks Gaggy and and this gorilla guy, um, and they forget to bring his legs along with them, take him to the hospital. Hey, fix him! And you know, obviously, the people from the hospital go running because Joker. Th this is how is this person still alive? They're missing the ent entire bottom half of his body. Um, and the only doctor they can get to show up is Professor Pig. And Professor Pig, uh, I assume he kills Jack and Apes, the gorilla character, because he uses um, <laughs> Jack and Apes' uh, legs and sews it onto the Joker. And if that sounds ludicrous to you, yeah, it, it is. 100% it yeah. is. So, uh, again, not sure what the point of these stories are yeah, other it's... than Rosenberg and Frank Avia just having some fun. Uh, I don't know. Any it's... thoughts on the backup? Yeah, it feels like a cross between Creep Show and The Joker. It's like, you know, these are like one-shot horror stories that Frank Avila has been doing, although they're not always horror. The Power Girl one was just sort of like a Joker crazy love story, but ended abruptly, didn't really have a point. And this one doesn't really either, but it just, it feels... Like, I've been reviewing the Creep Show uh, comics lately, and the Creep Show just have like five you know, five to, to eight or 10 page stories that are just sort of like horror stories that have try to have some, some kind of point, but often don't always have a theme. And this sort of reminds me of that. It's just, this is just like a horror element where the Joker ends up with, you know, gets sawed in half, but he's still alive. And, and the pig, you know, so is Mondo gorilla body. And then it just ends. It literally ends. It, it's not going to be continued. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like a cross between the Joker and creep show. And Frank Avella, his art is, is perfectly suited for that. And incidentally, Frank Avila has also been uh, drawing uh, the artist on a lot of the creep show, uh, creep show stories. And so anyways, I don't I love the art. I love his art. Uh, I just I agree with you. The stories are a little wonky, but that is what it is. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right. Up next, uh, we mentioned it's I'm sorry for skipping it. Um, sort of Azrael book number five. And I certainly don't want to skip it. This is one of the better books this week. I felt like uh, written by Dan Waters. Art is by Nicola Semegia and Pablo M. Collar. Colors by Marisa Louise. Letters by Hassan Atzman Elhel. Um, what do you think of this? Is this starting to come together for you, this Azrael series? 
Uh, yeah, I, I struggled uh, last issue, and uh, you were nice enough to sort of enlighten me, so to speak. And I use that word enlighten, not in the religious sense, not in the Israel sense. But uh, uh, so I remember uh, our discussions on that and uh, watching it uh, come together here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this a little bit more. Uh, first, I want to give a shout out to the variant covers. I actually really liked I liked all the variant covers here. In fact, I really like cover B uh, by uh, Brad Anderson uh, uh, is the colorist on it. I don't know who the actual artist is, but it's really gorgeous. Yeah, let, me, let me look that up real fast. Yeah, and I do I mention, I, the, the, I'm sure that the, the cover you were talking about on uh, Gotham City Year One, the one that looked kind of throwbacky. Yeah. Um, very similar to uh, Human Target, right? Because it's the same artist. It's uh, Greg Smallwood that did oh, that. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, variant covers by Alvaro Martinez. So the artist that does um, Nice House on the Lake. Oh, yeah. It's and, uh, gorgeous. Alvaro Martinez and Brad Anderson on one, and then Derek Chu does the second. Uh, yeah. The great. one that looks more digital, digital painted, because that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, well, we learned last year or last year, we learned last issue about this. Uh, it's not a mother box. It's called. Uh, uh, what is it? An, an angel box? Yeah, they just call it the angel maker. I don't know that the they angel maker. Right. And so and what was interesting uh, last issue, I had to go back and reread it. And then, of course, uh, I, I credit you with uh, explaining some of it to me because I didn't quite catch on to it, is that the idea that the, this so-called system, this this indoctrination that those that enter the, the House of St. Dumas are the it's really it's really this alien technology it isn't so much a religion but really an a alien tech from this angel maker box and this angel maker uh is now this system uh, th this this is a significant issue in that with the ironically enough with the help of father valley who is actually out to sort of essentially kill Azrael, Azrael actually overcomes the system and it, it sort of forgives himself for becoming the angel or becoming the, the angel of vengeance because he realizes that a lot of perhaps his darker urges were as a result of this angel maker. And so just as Azrael at the end of this issue overcomes that sort of programming and manages to defeat Father Valley, who's a little bit off his rocker anyway, this uh, we also have the at the beginning we have this Sariel character is being fully indoctrinated by the angel maker. She's she's become sort of like the new the new I guess agent of this this angel maker or the new I guess the new demon or if you will. And so it's we're really it's building something here. I, I like the idea here. It's an interesting concept that instead of a we, we've all heard of the mother box. This is the way I look at it. This is why I find it interesting. It reminds me of it's like having a mother box. The mother box is famous in 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 New God's lore because you can travel with the mother box to any dimension. Well, here we have an angel maker, which is in a sense almost like scientific slash religious indoctrination to create its own sort of followers and Azrael is was that's really what his origin was but we didn't really know that until now so i feel this is like a little bit i want to give some credit to uh i guess uh dan waters for doing a little bit of retconning here but in a pretty cool way i think it, it works albeit i still say it was a little bit i wish it wasn't quite as wonky as it was the story to this point but i fell upon my sword you didn't have a hard time understanding it last issue i did that's on me that's all right and uh but i like where this is going forward i'm i'm curious as 
as to where this is uh, going to be leading. I'm curious if is this Sariel going to become a villain, or she could become a, or are they all going to be able to overcome this this sort of programming? And I'm curious what what. Uh, Jean Paul's fate is moving forward because at the end of this, he actually enlists the help of Father Valley. And we know Father Valley to be a real badass. He was introduced and created by James Tinian, or, or pardon me, Ram V. In the, Ram V used him in the pages of Catwoman, and, and Father Valley, uh, you know, uh, managed to kill a number of uh, supporting characters over in the pages of Catwoman before Ram V left that title. And for him to come back, it was inevitable that Father Valley was going to come back into Azrael's life and his the role that he plays and his relationship with Azrael is interesting as well and and you know they they come to realize that they have more in common than they realize and it was a lot of the information about this angel maker box Jean Paul had to, it looked like Jean Paul Valley had to find out from Father Valley himself. How Father Valley knows that, the, the information, I'm not sure, but it's interesting. I, I like how it's all coming together, and I'm, yeah. So, what do you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed this, right? I wasn't the biggest fan of, uh, of Father Valley. Um, he just, I don't know, he seemed a little two dimensional to me in the pages of Catwoman. We get so much more context here. I do kind of wonder how much Dan Waters and Rom V spoke about uh, the character. His motivations here for wanting John Paul dead, you know, makes sense. He's an he's an adopted son of John Paul's father. Um, you know, he's he's like he he wanted to be the avenging angel. He wanted to be Azrael, uh, and instead it was John Paul. You know, the Order of Saint Dumas selected. Um, John Paul, because he was the, the, you know, the biological son of, of Ludovic Valley. Um, so father Valley's his surname's not actually Valley at all. He doesn't know. He doesn't know who, who he truly is. And to see Jean Paul turn his back on the system, to turn his back on being Azrael, to kind of, to separate himself from that, that, that drives father Valley crazy. Like John Paul is not, not only is he not appreciating what, Father Valley sort of craved and in a way is still envious of he, 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 he's submerging it. He's disowning it. You know, it's one thing to not appreciate it and still use it. He's not even using it. He's, he's ignoring it. He's actively trying to, to stop himself from being Azrael. So that's something that Father Valley just can't, uh, he can't reconcile that, you know, and he wants John Paul dead. So the, their confrontation here, it adds a lot of context for these characters. Again, it adds depth to Father Valley, makes him a more interesting character. Um, and I also like kind of the epiphany that that John Paul, uh, as you mentioned, uh, had here where, where he realizes, you know, all along I've been trying to, to stop being who I am and who I am is is Azrael, you know, this avenging angel. I've always in my mind kept them separated. Like that's a a different part, a different personality, a different being. But no, it's actually I have been him all along. And so again, I, I find myself really enjoying what Dan Waters is bringing to the mythos of uh, of Azrael. This idea of the angel maker rather than being some true religious thing. And the religion is just an excuse. Like it's been throughout history, human history, so, in so many times. An excuse to wage war, an excuse to subjugate, an excuse to uh, exploit others. Uh, in the name of you know whatever belief you have, uh, but at the end of the day, it's something that's much more in a way pedestrian than that, less spiritual. Um, and so the fact that they're going to be working together, 
And what that means, uh, I think it might mean that we're getting kind of the Azrael that I've really always wanted. And it's the story in him as a character, his story has leaned more that direction at times and other times it's leaned away from it, leaned more into the religion. But just this idea of this really badass fighter with this flaming sword that's going around dispensing justice with a righteous vengeance, right? Like, again, using that that excuse of religion or being God's avenging, avenging angel to be judge, jury, and executioner, there's something there as opposed to the zealot who is is praying and is constantly conflicted about whether or not he should be the one to decide to punish people or, or not. You know, more of that wishy-washy Azrael. That's not interesting to me. Um, we could, The argument can be made whether Azrael is actually a hero or whether he's a, a villain, probably somewhere in between, uh, you know, Marvel's got the Punisher. DC's got uh, Azrael in a lot of ways. So uh, the Nicholas Semeja art really works for me, although it's not the style that I, I typically enjoy. Um, you know, lots of oranges and reds here, yellows that you would expect from uh, an Azrael book. It certainly feels like, although there's only one issue left, there's a lot more of the story than can fit in one issue. Um, so I guess we'll see. You know, it, this one ends with John Paul and, and Father Valley, you know, seeming to reach an agreement to go hunt these other angels that are out there. Um, and again, that feels like a story that would take a lot longer than one more issue. So may, it might just be a situation where they're going to see how this sells before they uh, decide if there's more to come. So I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Poison Ivy number seven. This is written by G. Willow Wilson. Let's get to the credits here. I'll let you know who the artist is. Um, the art is by, can't seem to find the credit. There it is. Um, Adigan Ilhan, A-T-A-G-U-N, last name I-L-H-A-N. So apologies if I'm mispronouncing that guest artist name. Colors are by Arif Prianto, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. I don't have a heck of a lot to say about this issue. Um, I will say that G. Willow Wilson has taken Pamela Isley on, on quite the character arc in only seven issues. You know, that first, the start of the, the first arc, she really was leaning into her villainous ways. Rocky and I both commented on it extensively. Um, and then come to find out there was something, as we suspected, something more going on behind the scenes than met the eye that was kind of driving her to, to do those things that she was doing. And it ended, came to a conclusion with that first arc with her eating Jason Woodrow, which isn't as gross as it sounds because he's not a human body anymore. He's made of plant material, conscious uh, plant material, sentient plant material, if you, if you prefer that term. Um, but consuming him in order to, to heal herself and, you know, an all new beginning. And with the second arc, we see her leaning back into the whole idea of being an eco-terrorist. I don't necessarily like that word. Uh, I suppose it fits in terms of the tactics she's using, but really she's going to be out there in the world stopping companies and individuals who are doing things that harm the environment. And that's what we see in this this particular issue um, where she gets a job working for this uh, fracking company, um, Future Gas, it's called. Uh, and she gets, she, she gets a job with them by – uh, passing herself off as a landscaper. Um, <laughs> that might be, that might be underselling it a little bit to, to call yourself uh, a landscaper. 
if you're a poison ivy, but yeah, it, it, it works. Um, it doesn't take her long to, to realize that these people are poisoning the environment and, uh, she's going to take matters into her own hands to, to stop it from going wrong. So what are your thoughts? Well, uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that, uh, a plot line that's been developing from the first issue is that, uh, Pamela Isley, at least from the first issue, it was unclear whether or not she was going to go full evil again. And we thought maybe she was, and she actually did end up killing some innocent people, which is, which is kind of, this is, it adds to the complication of, uh, of Pamela Isley's character. And one of the, one of the, in issue, I think it was two or three, she ended up killing a number of people that were infected by lamia spores and have become these creatures that are still, that are actually infected around this area where Pamela Isley is basically working as a landscaper. And what I like what Jay Willow Wilson is doing here is that she's making the so-called corporate guru, the corporate villain that you normally think of as being evil and always uh, hateful of the environment and everything else. Here we have a corporate, uh, the head of Future Gas is this uh, woman by the name of Miss Crawley, who is in fact, uh, she's actually there to, uh, this Miss Crawley is actually there. She became the head of the, of corporate, uh, of future gas to essentially try to make it, them more environmentally friendly there. She's trying just like some corporations, some gas companies do much to the cynicism of certain environmentalists. There are gas companies that do their best to try to preserve the environment or to minimize their impact on the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And on the surface, that appears to be what this Miss Crawley is doing. Uh, and, and what, but what's happening is that these uh, other people that, that Pamela has killed in the past, they were infected by Lamia spores and, and Pamela, I, last issue ended with poison Ivy actually eating, eating Jason Woodrow. She basically ingested him and she thought that was the end of the Lamia spore threat, but it's not. So this, the threat of the Lamia spores are still prevalent and they're prevalent here in this area where Pamela is working. And this, and, um, it, it, um, this Miss Crawley ends up uh, spraying something. This Miss Crawley used to be an assistant with Jason Woodrow and didn't like uh, what happened to Jason Woodrow back in the day when, because back in the university days, uh, Poison Ivy, Pamela Isley, and Jason Woodrow worked together. And this Miss Crawley used to be a student of of Jason Woodrow's, and she's got some sort of uh, chemical that she sprays on on Pamela, which sort of. I don't know, incapacitates her and makes her become frozen and turn into this, once again, turn into this crazy flowery, flowery plant-like hybrid. And and so she's essentially at the mercy of this Miss Crawley and that's how the issue ends. So I I actually like this. There's a... It, because it shows consequences for Pamela Isley's actions. Pamela, uh, all the people that she's killed have come back to haunt her. The Lamia spores. The, Pamela Isley has had a negative impact on the environment. That's what I find ironic. Poison Ivy is about preserving the environment, even wiping out mankind. And yet she is mankind's own worst. She is humanity's own worst enemy. She's her own worst enemy in many ways. Uh, so she tries to protect the environment and ends up doing more harm than good, which is sort of an interesting, ironic take. And I'm glad, I'm glad Jay Willow Wilson is going there and making an antagonist here that is a little bit more, uh, perhaps more complicated than just your simple corporate villains. So uh, all, overall, I thought this was well done. Yeah, it's, I could do with a little bit less. It almost feels like body horror with with Pamela being turned into 
yeah, having these spores grow on her body every third issue. Yeah. Um, and and if it's going to be, hey, here's here's two issues with her going up against this corporation. Here's two issues with her going up against that corporation. I, I guess the the thing I wonder, based on what we've had from the series so far, what what's DC's end game? And again, I maybe I'm giving DC too much credit, DC editorial too much credit, that they have a plan for where Poison Ivy should end up. Like you know, for, I, I think a lot of Poison Ivy fans. Uh, and Harley fans don't really care one way or the other. They just want Harley and Ivy to be together, which hey, valid if that's what you uh, if that's what you're a fan of. But do they have an idea of where they want Poison Ivy to be at the end of this? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, an anthology that ties into Dark Crisis, Dark Crisis War Zone, um, and DC did not give a credits page, at least not in the the uh, in the digital copy that we got. So I'm going to flip through real fast. The first story that we have in here is written by Jeremy Adams, pencils by Fernando Passerin, inks by Matt Ryan, and colors by Matt Herms, with letters by Troy Petrie, and it's called On Time. And then secondly, we have, and that's a, a I would say a flash story, but it's more a Linda, um, Linda West and, and Iris Allen story. And then secondly, we have a Spectre story or Jim Corrigan story called Just When I Thought I Was Out uh, that's scripted by Frank Thierry, pencils and inks by Serge Acuna, colors by Matt Herms, and letters by Troy Petrie. And I would be all in on a, a Spectre series by Frank Thierry. He's not somebody I would have thought of as somebody to write Spectre, but man, he did a great job on that on that issue or that story. Next, we have, uh, I guess it's an Amazonian story from Stephanie Williams, pencils and inks by Caitlin Yarsky, colors by Peter Pantazis, and letters by Troy Petrie. Then uh, a Green Lantern story that has Hal and Guy Gardner and Joe Mullen, as well as uh, other unnamed Green Lanterns. Um, and that one is written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by George Kamambatis, colors by Matt Herms and letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, up next, we have a, I guess it's a Red Canary story. Um, it comes right out of the Dark Crisis, the Dark Army one shot. We saw them at the end of that um, end of that issue teleport to the main battle, and that's where it's it's picked up with Red Canary meaning Black Canary. And uh, this one is written by Delilah S. Dawson, pencils and inks by Tom Derenick, and colors by uh, Matt Herms with letters by Troy Petrie. Um, I, I I thought that the Birds of a Feather, this Red Canary story where she gets to meet Black Canary was sort of fun, but at the same time, like the dialogue and the kind of the overall feel that everybody has or presents in the story where they're, Oh, it's nice to meet you. And you know, th th there's no sense of like menace. You know what I mean? Like in dark crisis, they're fighting for the, like their very existence, the existence of the entire multiverse. And yet it's almost like they're out like on a walk and just happy to see each other. And I don't know. I don't think the, the sense of, of doom or a sense of danger is really there. So eh, I was kind of, th that felt a little off to me. Um, the Green Lantern story from Rosenberg, I thought was fine. Although the, the art wasn't my favorite from Combatus, it, it felt very uh, flat. Um, and the, the Amazonian story, it felt very much like a lot of the Amazonian stories we've been getting lately where it, it just wasn't interesting. Um, it wasn't bad, but it just wasn't interesting. Um, I mentioned the Spectre story. I really loved it with Jim Corrigan showing his, his heroism. 
at this point, when the story starts, he's been separated from Spectre, as we've seen in DC continuity recently. But his willingness to kind of throw himself in into the middle of the battle, despite not being um, not having access to the powers of the Spectre, um, and then kind of rejoining, um, was kind of interesting to me. And it is it does say end question mark, so it does give me hope that we're going to get more of this. Because um, he even says the fight between me and the Spectre, I got a funny feeling this one's only just begun like the battle over who's going to be in control. Cause it does look like Jim Corrigan is back to being uh, the specter by the end of the, the series. And then the, the Jeremy Adams story. I mean, it has the same feel as this flash run. Like it's fantastic. Uh, so much fun. And the art by Fernando Pastrin is super detailed. So overall, is this necessary? This dark crisis one shot? N- not at all. Not like most of the dark crisis one shots. Um, but I guess it's fun. In, in its own way. And um, I know that we have, have had access to the final issue of Dark Crisis for some time. I just haven't had a chance to read it. But I think you did, Rocky, if I I'm not this. mistaken. Well, yeah. I'm not, I, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. No, no, no. We'll, we won't talk about it until the time is yeah. right. I, just, I noticed that somebody had access to file, and so I was assuming that you checked it out already. Yeah. So, no, anyway, what are, yeah, what are your thoughts on this one shot? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to apologize to you, uh, Jace. I, I, I kept having to refresh the page, and it just popped up now. It finally popped up on, on the box. Oh, no worries. Because I wanted to show pictures as you were talking again, so it just takes time uh, for those of us listening on the podcast. Uh, when for the visual medium of YouTube, I try to show show the pictures as Jace talks. But in any event, um, I thought this was largely a uh, a waste of time. Um, however, having said that, this is Dark Crisis Warzone, and that's and Warzone is exactly what it is. These are individual stories where you could tell that Joshua Williamson said to numerous writers, he said to Jeremy Adams, Frank Thierry, Stephanie. Williams, Williams and uh, and a couple of other writers, Delilah S. Dawson. Yeah, basically told him, you know, um, just, you know, you can write about all the characters, you know, write about Red Canary, Black Canary, Flash, the, the, the Spectre, and you can make them fight. Just it's a city in chaos and have them fight anybody. And, and that's exactly what happens. And Jeremy Adams, Jeremy Adams does a nice story that could have been told in his own flashbook. This could have been told in the pages of Flash. This is just a, a, a story of, of Iris, Iris Allen and uh, Linda, Linda Park West basically talking about their husbands, ta- where Linda saves Iris from from this random villain who, you know, <laughs> who, who is totally nameless, totally useless, by the way. All the villains in this one shot, virtually all of them are brand new C and D level villains. We have a Dark Crisis event uh, where we have, we have major, major A-list villains and virtually none of them are in a comic book called Dark Crisis Warzone. We have been subjected to almost no actual action against the big ticket the the eclipsos the 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 we the only the eclipsos the the uh black hand the all the all the real big ticket aries all those big huge villains uh even dark side we see very little of that the most villains the most the biggest villains we've seen in the dark crisis event we've seen doomsday and dark side most of the other a a-list villains we we rarely see, and uh, Dark. Um, we we have gotten plenty of Deathstroke, and at least Deathstroke's name. Uh, I'm sorry, but he's what well, Deathstroke to me is not multiversal. 
Deathstroke that's is just true. a Teen Titans villain. That's that's my that's my venting right there. And we got too much of Deathstroke. And we get too much of Deathstroke. And spoiler alert for seven, yeah, we get too much of Deathstroke. But <laughs> in any event, sorry I slipped up. But um, this, uh, let's start at the beginning. This Jeremy Adams story with uh, uh, Fernando Pastrana on the art, it, it, it's really good. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's fun. It's entertaining. Uh, but it is largely unnecessary. But it's fun. But it just shows them fighting. It, it literally is just fighting. They have a conversation. They talk about their husbands. And they talk about they really have to beat up the bad guys now and go fight in the dark crisis. The second story is with Jim Corrigan. Jim Corrigan is normally associated with the Spectre. The Spectre hasn't been... Jim Corrigan hasn't been part of the Spectre or molded or part of the Spectre, melded with the Spectre, with the Spectre for a very long time. And it's during his battle with Raven that we, we, we only saw hints of during the Dark Crisis series where it's during the Spectre's battle with Raven where the Raven is able to defeat Spectre because Jim Corrigan basically jumps into Spectre and there's some sort of internal battle between the two of them that weakens him and allows Raven to defeat the Spectre. Uh, some of the commentary is off. You can tell that Williamson did, didn't do a very good job. You can tell these writers didn't really know what was going on with Dark Crisis because there's inconsistencies in, their, in, the, in the dialogue in terms of what they think is actually happening. Uh, and that really shines through, I think, with the Spectre-Raven thing in terms of what, what, what what's, you know, you know, Jim Corrigan says, speaks as if he's he's never seen the Spectre so evil or so malevolent before, and what have you, which flies in the face of the fact that the Dark Army has had a difficult time control. Was supposed to at least at one point have a difficult time controlling all these A-list, uh, powerful multiversal entities. But again, I'm nitpicking here, and at this point, it's pointless to nitpick because these writers were given these assignments before they even knew probably exactly how this series was going to go. Uh, by far, the worst, the most useless story here is the library of the mascara where it shows amazons we we're, i don't even know why stephanie williams bothered writing this she basically gives i don't know what this is it shows amazons on the island practicing their 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 being warriors and one glorified speech and literally we we learn nothing about it's just Amazons, and then it shows we, we move away from Themyscira, from the library of Themyscira, because they're chronicling all these major multiversal events. And then it shows Akahim, the home of the Esquisitas, where one of the one of the Esquisitas has a vision that uh, of death and destruction, and then that's continued in Final Crisis or Dark Crisis Number Seven. What a waste! Uh, we we get the the a Green Lantern story is actually. Good Green Lantern story. We see rapport between Joe Mullen and uh, Joe Mullen and, and uh, Guy Gardner, and uh, she's a kick-ass character. And and so that was actually not bad. But again, we I challenge anybody, I challenge anybody to actually go through these stories and identify what's the threat, what are they fighting, like what is the end game here? It's just all this is is massive chaos. And these Green Lanterns, by the way. They're, what what they're fighting, it doesn't actually show what they're fighting. It just shows them showing shooting green beams that we don't even know what they're shooting green beams at or their power rings at. It's just a bunch of darkness. Well, it's shadow demons. The horrible thing about the shadow demons and the failure of the narrative dark crisis is the, totally embracing the, the idea of shadow demons so that all you have to do is, is, is to show the good guys battling darkness because it makes for lazy artists. 
and you don't actually have to draw an actual cool looking villain. You can just drop Blackness and say, oh, look how good the Green Lanterns are or look how good they are at battling darkness. When you got Red Canary, a chick that just got out of karate school, can beat up a shadow creature with her her stick. You know that you failed as, a, as in creative in, in terms of developing a compelling villain. But in any event, uh uh, the Red Canary story was the one where I was, uh, I could have, I could have some issues with this. I don't like this one at all. I don't know who Delilah S. Dawson is, but I'm venturing a guess. She must've been a writer for the CW network because this is the most cringeworthy dialogue that I could come across. And I don't know if she, I thought Red Canary was supposed to be sin. Sin was sort of like, uh, sort of like, almost like the, sort of like the adopted daughter of Red Ca- of uh, Black Canary, but it's clear here that Sin has always looked up to Black Canary, and uh, and at some point Damien tells Red Canary to get out of the way, you're 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 a liability, and she actually goes and hides in a in a in an abandoned city bus. This is so ridiculous. And then Damon, Damon, Damien makes her go and she actually listens to him and then almost gets killed while inside the bus. I know. And, and, and how would, how would she even know? And then the doll man of all people ends up in the bus to attack red canary. And then black canary out of the blue shows up in the bus and, and saves her. And she's all smiley and everything else. And the art by Tom Derenick, it's, it's, it's serviceable. Uh, but it, it, somebody should tell him that when you draw, you know, Damian Wayne, it's, it was established the last appearance of Damian Wayne, that Damian Wayne is only five foot four inches tall. And yet Damian Wayne is the tallest person in this particular story. If you go at the, if you go at the beginning, uh, so all, all the heights and everything are all off everything else. You could tell this was essentially phoned in, in terms of the plot and, and Tom Derenick could, could only work with the information he was given, but, uh, the, well, Derenick doesn't have a history of doing anatomy real well. Remember his, um, his future state Green Lantern series, where half the time John Stewart looked tall and thin, and the other half he looked like a pygmy. Fair enough. Like, yeah, yeah. It's uh, not a strong team for him. <laughs> well, it was it was funny because you know in in this issue, the one of the most one of the characters that was introduced in the first issue of Dark Crisis was one panel showing Red Canary putting on her mask. That's all it was. And I thought it was going to be special. I thought we were going to be, sh- there was going to be a moment uh, where Dar- where Red Canary might have a moment in this series. And of course, she, she doesn't. Uh, spoiler alert, she doesn't. And what a disappointment. And not only that, I don't know what the point was. What was the point of having Red Canary in this series at all, other than the fact that you want to focus on legacy characters? But here, there's, I actually laughed out loud. This is so bad. There's actually a scene here where I think it's Red Canary's origin story. Do you know what Red Canary's origin story is, boys and girls? I can't make this crap up. It's actually on the written page. She was, she was in a guitar store and she was playing the guitar and she really likes Black Canary because, you know, Black Canary is a musician. And she saw Black Canary in, in in concert once, and she was in a she was in a she was in a in, in a music store. Somebody tried to rob rob the guitar store, and she cracked the guitar over the robber's head. And she knew right then and there that she wanted to be a hero. I mean, if that doesn't sound like a CW dialogue plot device, I don't know what does. But this is atrocious. And what I don't like about it is I have any interest I had in Red Canary is gone. 
She is ridiculous. This is the origin and, and, and it's being told to us in, in bad dialogue. Why not have a separate series where you could actually show the origin, even have a flashback. I would rather have had eight pages of a flashback of Red Canary almost being killed and having a flashback as to how she got there and how she got pulled in. But instead we get this cringeworthy dialogue between Black Canary and, and Red Canary and Black Canary doesn't even recognize her. And if Black Canary doesn't recognize Sin, it makes me wonder, is this even Sin or is this a different character? Because I want this to be Sin, but now I don't want it to be Sin because it's such a badly written character. But Sorry for my rant, but man, this was just such a such a disappointment. Such a disappointment. This is by far for me. This is the worst comic of the week. Is this Dark Crisis? I, I was so disappointed in it. Completely waste of paper, as far as I was concerned. I, so I don't put any blame whatsoever on on these creators. I think the blame lies with the event in and of itself. The event is just so bad and so pointless, yeah. and I just I. And again, we'll probably talk about it more when it comes time to, to talk about issue number seven. But I go back to how excited you were um, <laughs> yeah. the first issue or two. And now I'm sitting here thinking as we have only one issue of Dark Crisis to go, is Dark Crisis going, going to be better, worse, or as bad as Future State? Like what's what's the answer there? Is it worse? Is it better? But yeah, that's a debate to be had at a, at a later time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Last book we're going to talk about in detail, Monkey Prince number nine, written by Jean Luen Yang. Bernard Chang is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Janice Ching on letters. Um, we left uh, Amnesty Bay at the end of last issue. We're told we were going to Metropolis and, and we're dropped right into the middle of, of Metropolis. And Marcus's... Parents have gotten, you know, where are you, if you're a mad scientist, where are you going to get a job at in Metropolis? Well, of course, you're going to work at LexCorp. And sure enough, they are. Things go sideways. Marcus's mom gets injured very badly. And they have to go see Marcus's, uh, or yeah, Marcus's grandfather, who he's never met before, uh, his mom's father, basically. And when he finds out that she's hurt, he kind of takes it out on his dad. Uh, with old man strength, so clearly there's more to uh, to Marcus's grandfather than than meets the eye. He seems to be a bit of a mad scientist himself. Uh, meanwhile, Supergirl is investigating at, at LexCorp where all this stuff went down with this uh, red Red Bull villain. And uh, who shows up? But classic Superman villain, Ultra Humanite. So what what he has to do with Monkey Prince? Uh, it, it, kind of in my mind doesn't really have anything to do with monkey prince other than hey they're in metropolis we need a superman villain uh let's not lean into the trope of using lex so i did appreciate that let's use somebody else so they chose ultra humanite which makes sense i also appreciated that you know when they said okay we're going to metropolis you right away you would assume all right well that means we're gonna, it's going to be a monkey prince superman team up instead it's Supergirl, which again i appreciated because it's not the, the same old thing um, and then at the end, we're, we're teased with uh, next month, a Lazarus Planet event, because we know Monkey Prince is going to play a, a pretty big role in that. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, the Bernard Chang art is super dynamic. I especially loved the facial expressions when Monkey Prince uh, and Supergirl interact. It's clear that Marcus has a big crush on Supergirl. 
uh, which, you know, whatever, she's strong and blonde and blue eyes and she can fly and, you know, what's not to like, I guess, uh, especially teenage boy. So, uh, yeah, I thought it worked. This, this, um, this location and the whole idea of uh, Marcus's mother being injured, I imagine that's going to maybe spur some conversations finally between Marcus and his parents. Hey, I know you guys are working for supervillains. Probably not a good idea because uh, we do only have three issues left after this one. Uh, and this is the Monkey King and I part one of four. So this this arc, this um, Metropolis set story is going to, to finish out the, the series overall. So uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, this is my favorite issue since issue one. I, I This is my favorite out of all the first nine issues. This is my favorite. It, I feel like it's all starting to come together now. This is just, this was just a great issue. I, I love the fact that they're in Metropolis. I love the fact that Marcus's parents, they're, they're, finally there's a consequence because you can't, you can't work for, for DC supervillain after DC supervillain after DC supervillain and continuously avoid some kind of injury, not in the DC universe. And certainly it was not good to see that Marcus's mother was, her neck was snapped. She's still alive. They necessitated going to Marcus's grandfather, who apparently has some, uh, some abilities himself, seems to be sort of a mad scientist in his own right. And actually he seems to have some mind control over the, the ultra humanite seems to be, I think, mind controlled by Marcus's father. I think that's what he was. I think that's what he's he's mind controlling this person that's purporting to be the ultra humanite. Uh, at least that's the impression I got, which is kind of cool. Uh, I love the interaction between Supergirl and Monkey Prince. Uh, I love when she hits Monkey Prince. He called her, "Don't worry, your pretty little blonde head." And of course, she took offense to that. And you know, and he's just he's just sort of love struck, but she won't have any of that. So she gave him a good. Uh, hit across the face that's that's what uh that's what uh, courtship is like in the 21st century gentlemen never never call a woman beautiful in uh, and in a sarcastic manner you'll get hit uh that's just the way it is especially in the dc universe and uh, and supergirl is sexy here despite the fact that she's uh, drawn with those ridiculous blue tights which unfortunately they made the mistake of copying the cw network on that oh my god show some skin but anyways that's me venting uh it is worth noting as well uh, at the beginning. Pigsy here. This is connected to the to the uh, to the world's finest story, and uh, connected to the Robin versus Batman. Pigsy is kidnapped here. is is kidnapped and taken to Lazarus Island. It's in this issue where he is in fact kidnapped uh, by Jinx, and uh, I don't know if that's Roz. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, uh, Tonarak uh, and Jinx end up kidnapping Pixie here and he, he ends up on Lazarus Island where he's uh, captured, where he's uh, incarcerated by the, the demon Nezha. And uh, you can read... After this issue, this issue takes the continuation of Pigsy's story takes place in Robin v. Batman issue three. So uh, it's it's actually really nice. It's a high compliment, I think, to uh, Genial Yang because he it's nice to see Mon monkey prince mythology sort of incorporated into a big dc event and it's done in an organic way and not in a confusing way and i think it works here and i'm just this is really coming together for me i'm really glad that i stuck with it because i gotta tell you if it wasn't for the fact uh, jace that you and i review these comics all the time i probably wouldn't have kept 
purchasing monkey prints. It, w- it would not have been something that would have been regularly on my pull list, but I got every issue. I actually own all the physical copies of the first uh, eight issues. I'll be picking this one up uh, this week. And I'm glad I did because this is definitely something where it's developed organically. And it's a, sort of a nice little lesson to me that I got to, you know, I got to maybe be, I got to be more patient with some of these writers and their stories to give them more room to breathe because this monkey prince is a prime example of one where I'm sort of glad I waited and, you know, I gave it more of a shot because it's really coming into its own. You're on mute. You're on mute there. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not sure why I was muted there, but yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. I think um, it's more of a slow burn and it's clear that DC is committed to, to monkey prince being that he's going to play a big role in, uh, in the Lazarus Island event, you know, we know he's a, a magical character, so it makes sense that he would, uh, he would be part of that story. So we'll see how that plays out. There was, is one other, uh, individual issue. It's, uh, Batman Nightwatch number four, which is kind of the, uh, all ages book, the book that's kind of aimed more at younger readers. So that has its fourth issue, uh, fourth issue out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we also have some collections, the absolute multiversity, that's the story by Grant Morrison. It has a hardcover edition that's out this week. There's a DC poster portfolio book uh, featuring George Perez art. Joker's Asylum has a trade paperback con- um, collecting all the Joker's Asylum one shots. If you're not familiar with that, I think it was back in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. And it's the Joker. You know, I think we men- you mentioned when you're talking about the backup, uh, one of the Joker backups, kind of him being a crypt keeper type character. Well, he definitely is in Joker's Asylum. So there's all these one shots telling stories of other Batman villains and the Joker's the narrator. Like, oh, let me tell you about Two-Face. And then he tells a Two-Face story. Um, So again, if you're curious, if you're a Joker fan or Batman Rogues um, villain fan, you may want to check that out. Uh, And then finally, the Death of Superman 30th Anniversary uh, special has its um, hardcover deluxe edition coming out this week as well. So uh, that does it for this episode. Uh, I think you, you already mentioned your favorite. Well, yeah, you? yeah, well, my pick of the week, it is, uh, it is, uh, Gotham's it's, uh, it is, uh, Gotham city year one issue three. I thought you were going to say, uh, the dark crisis one shot based <laughs> on the strength of the black canary story. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I haven't thought about it. Let me, Look down the list real fast. I mean, clearly, I have a lot of love for Batman One Thirty and him falling from from space. But you know, what? I'm going to go with uh, with sort of Azrael because again, I think Dan Waters is really paying off everything that he's been building. That that's another one where, man, based on the first three part story we had in Batman Urban Legends, I, I was worried things were swinging back more toward the uh, zealotry version of Azrael, but instead we're swinging back more toward what I want out of Azrael. So maybe it's just my bias um, rearing its ugly head, but I'll go with sort of Azrael number five. Um, but had you not picked Gotham City year one, I, that would have been my pick, but uh, <laughs> or go with something different. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, any other uh, episodes or, or content coming up that you want to plug? Uh, well, not not off the top of my head. I'm going to... Uh, 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 
I'm doing some more indie comics review this week, and I'm going to be reviewing uh, Ronin, uh, Ronin Book 2 by Frank Miller. I'm reviewing the Ashcan and the first issue of Ronin Book 2, issue 1. I've, uh, I took the liberty of taking, I had to take pictures because you can't buy it digitally, so I, I took uh, high-resolution pictures of each page, and I'll be uh, cheating and doing a review uh, of, of that, and that'll be coming out probably the next few days. But uh, uh, I know that, uh, but you, your interviews, I know that you interviewed uh, Scotch and Comics or Whiskey and Comics. Uh, what was, uh, remind me about that again. That sounded, I got to check that out. Yeah. So uh, at, at the Los Angeles Comic Convention this last, um, this last week, they had, or this last weekend, they had two, two events. <laughs> the one on Friday was just for press and they had another one was open to the public on Saturday where you basically would go in and they had these three different scotches and i don't usually think of scotch as a, a a cocktail you know like if i drink scotch it's you know on the rocks or just neat uh it's not really something you mix with other things um but they they <laughs> had they had a, a a scotch there that they mixed with the banana liqueur uh and it was a really smoky scotch and i like it tasted to me like what i would imagine if you dried a banana out and rolled it up and smoked it that's what it tasted like, banana and smoke. And so that was interesting. I don't know that I would have it again. I'm glad I tried it. And then they had one that was basically like a version of a whiskey sour, but with a five, five-year-old five aged scotch, uh, which again, I'm not a fan really of any kind of a sour drink. So, you know, again, I tried it. That one was okay. But the one that I, I think I ended up having three or four of was um, it was basically, maybe it's because that's how I typically drink scotch. It was basically scotch on the rocks but it had like some amaretto and some nutmeg and um, a lime twist and an orange twist. Nice. And that one was that one was really good. So uh, all three of those drinks, they have stories. The, the the scotches that are in those drinks, they have stories in this graphic novel anthology that Ronald Wimberly, uh, acclaimed comic creator and visual artist, uh, he wrote the stories. Uh, and then he drew the framework story. So there's three stories and it, they're about a character named the quantum distiller who <laughs> travels through, through time. Cause, cause that's one of the things about whiskey, right? Um, a lot of times you talk about whiskey, there's so much history inherent in whiskey. And, and these are the intersections that, that you'll hear Ronald talk about along with, um, Cameron George, who's the national ambassador for Ardbeg, which is the scotch company. There was a panel that they or presentation they gave that I recorded. And then I got, there was only two of us or three of us, maybe only two of us that got to have little one-on-ones with Ronald after. So it's a quick 10 minute chat with Ronald talking about some of the things they discussed on the panel. But one of the things, so when I first got invited, I was like, well, I like scotch and I like comics. So I'll probably go to this. And I got to be honest that, you know, part, part of the draw is I know I'm going to get free scotch, which you know, <laughs> is better than scotch I've paid for. Um, so I'm driving there and it's like a six hour, five and a half hour, six hour drive from Phoenix to LA. And I'm thinking about how strange this is, right? Like, wait, so they, this, this scotch company decided to commission Ronald Wimberly to make a graphic novel based on their scotches. Like that's just not something you would inherently think about. Right. But the more I thought about it, the more I started connecting the dots and having it make sense. Going back to what I was saying about like there's so much history inherent in scotch in terms of you're harvesting peat moss a lot of times 
and and all Ardbeg uh, whiskey or scotch is made on the island of Isla, which is this island that's sort of equidistant from Scotland and Ireland. It's and it's off the coast of um, of Ireland and Scotland. Um, and you can't you it's like a 50 minute flight from Edinburgh, apparently, but you can't always it's a 50 minute flight, assuming you take off from Edinburgh and you land. Mm hmm. But there's always fog, and so you never know. Like sometimes you'll take off and you'll try to land, and the pilot can't literally cannot see the ground, and they can't land, and you have to turn around, and go back, and then try again three or four times. Sometimes, so it's it's exactly what you th picture in your mind with like these highlands and you know marshes and and all this stuff, and that's where they get their peat moss. And you know the, the, it's a very old place steeped in history, and then you, so so you have that aspect of it. And then you have the aspect of the traditions that these, these, it's a generational thing that these people that, that create scotch have been doing it for decades and decades, if not centuries. And then you have the whole idea of taking that, which already inherently has history and putting it in barrels and aging it. And so in a way it's a little bit like a time capsule. Uh, and there are intersections in that when you talk about comics and telling stories that are you know, pulling from different things that you were inspired by and read in comics when you were a kid. So it's intersections like that. And there's, there's a lot more, you know, we could talk about what, what my palate brings to when I drink uh, scotch, it tastes a little different to me, to me. Maybe I pick up apple and vanilla. Maybe you pick up, you know, walnut and smoke, you know, just based on our palates because everybody's different just in the same way. Like if you read a comic, everybody can have a different reaction based on their own experiences, life experiences, what they bring to the comic. So there's a lot of intersection actually. Uh, and then, you know, the nuance, the art form, all that, there's all that. And they talk about that on the panel. And then we kind of expand on it a little bit in our 10 minute chat. And uh, I'm hoping to have Cameron and or Ronald on at a later time when the uh, graphic novel is out and available for wide release where everybody can go and pick it up um, to talk a little bit more about those themes. Um, so yeah, it's the, the framework of the story of the quantum distiller is written by, and drawn by one Ronald Wimberly. And then one of the three kind of time multiversal journeys, the quantum disorder goes on is also written and drawn by Ronald Wimberly. One of the other, the second of the two multiversal stories is still written by Ronald, but drawn by Sanford green. And then the final one is written by Ronald and drawn by Emma Rios. So they, I mean, they went all out. They got like a level creators, um, to do this. And, uh, and yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun, not least of which, cause I got to sit around and nerd out and talk about how actually there's <laughs> way more in common with scotch and, and comics than you might think. Sure. And I, I got to do it while drinking free scotch. I, I will say I was, I got right to the edge of, Oh, I, if I would have had one more drink, it would not, I would have, yeah, probably would not have been good, but it was over a period of like maybe four hours that I had those, uh, I'd never had the sour. I just tasted it, just tasted it. But yeah, five drinks in uh, four hours. Yeah, that's probably right where I need to be. Because the other thing was I was I hadn't eaten anything in oh. days. I was on an empty stomach. So, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And then as as I mentioned, dinner with with Jeremy Adams. Um, so he he should be coming on the show too. And the other the other thing that was cool about the the, the Scotch thing is what I didn't know is uh, a creator that's been on the show before, Jackson Lansing, writer. He's a huge Ardbeg fan. And I, I happened to run into him and I was like, ah, you know, 
good to see you. We'll talk uh, tomorrow. I'll come by your table. I can't really talk now. I'm on my way to this whiskey thing. He's like, whiskey thing? I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, Ardbeg. And he, he's like, wait, what? I'm a huge fan of Ardbeg. So I got there. <laughs> and even though it was press only, I, I was like, hey, can I put the name of this creator on the list? And can he, so he ended up coming and yeah, we got sure. to hang out. And that, that was a lot of fun as well. So yeah, it was a, it was a, um, it was a fun show. What's interesting is, so last year we only covered it for one day and felt like we needed to be there multiple days. This year we were there multiple days and I felt like I could have got everything done in one day, except for the fact that the whiskey event was Friday night. And then I was at the show probably three quarters of the day on Saturday. And uh, on Saturday I did interview a couple of the actors from the Sandlot. Kind of, uh, it's having its 30th anniversary next year. They have started their own charity to kind of give back give grants for playground equipment and, um, and kids, uh, who may have, uh, needs with food and clothing and that sort of thing. So they're trying to get that off the ground. And obviously with the 30th anniversary of Sandlot coming up, it's a good, good time to, to have visibility of that. So that episode will be coming later this week, uh, as well as our usual, uh, new comics Wednesday. And then, you know, a ton of interviews coming up for, um, 12 days of the, the comic source. I've only got gotten a couple of them done so far, but there's a lot more to come this weekend or this week. Um, so look for those leading up to, uh, to Christmas time. So. That's good. We're going to have a, it sounds like we have a busy Christmas month ahead of us. Yeah. December is always <laughs> uh, crazy. Maybe, maybe too much. So, but anyway, we want to thank you all for joining. Hope your holiday season's off to a great start. Uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, to listen to us talk about DC Comics. Don't forget, if you're listening to the audio-only version, head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Uh, subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave some comments. Uh, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you haven't subscribed to the Comic Source, be sure you head over to wherever you get your, uh, your podcast. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. That way you don't miss out on any of the... Um, only because it's a lot more than than what we have on uh, on these uh, you know these DC spotlights. It's only part of what the, the comic source does. I did want to ask you, Rocky, since you weren't able to join me last week, did you get a chance to read all the the books from last week? Oh yeah, yeah, I read them all. Yeah, I I, I did. I've uh, I, I'm curious. I, Let's run down the list real fast. Give your quick like all right. two second thought. So Superman Kellel returns special, which I thought was sort of generic. What'd you think? Uh, Superman Kellel returns. Uh, that one was, I thought that was um, very. I didn't understand the point. It was just a story. I, it, it didn't add anything to the. It was he returned, but it was just an adventure. It really had nothing to do with him returning, as far as I was concerned. It was very, yeah. very forgettable. It, it was just forgettable, and I it adds absolutely nothing to nothing. And I, I literally I read it actually twice, and I thought I thought the villain was one dimensional. I thought that that the interaction. Uh, let, let's put it this way. And, and I hate to be so cynical because I was talking earlier about hinting at, I, I've said, I, I'm not a fan of where the Superman family is going into 2023. I don't, I'm just not a fan of it. I don't like, 
I don't like that concept. I don't like the family that they've created. I don't like the orphans. I don't like. I don't like Supergirl's not fit. I don't like the. I don't like the Connor. I don't like the. I don't like Connor can. I don't like John can. I'm not a big fan of merging them all together in one big happy family. And it's just it doesn't. I want to go back to. I want to go back to this. I want the secret identity coming back. I know it's coming back. Thank God. I want super. I just want Clark, Lois, and Clark. And uh, well, I, we're not going to get a young John Kent. I know that, but I just, I, to me, Superman Kal-El returns embodied everything. I, I just that I, I personally, it's not for me. It's not for me. I, and I'll just leave it at that. But I, I'm almost reluctant to ask about the Nubia Justice League. I guess Nubia is going to be joining the Justice uh, League. Yeah, well, I, I happen to have the, the thumbnails uh, because I ended up. Uh, I apologize. I, I, I had to. Last week was crazy. I had to end up having to appear in court the next morning, and I had to prepare. So, uh, Nubia was just. This was uh, everyone loves Nubia. <laughs> That's all this was. This is just an, an adventure with Nubia. It was nothing actually. It, it wasn't bad. It was just cringy. It was cringeworthy. Everybody fawned over Nubia. Everybody fawned over her. I mean, I didn't, I, apparently Green Arrow didn't know that other people could fly. Apparently uh, Black Canary was just overwhelmed. She's never seen anyone as amazing as Nubia, despite the fact she's worked alongside Wonder Woman for, for decade, for over a decade. I mean, it was just, it was just embarrassing. Look, uh, I understand the importance of wanting to bring Nubia into the fold for the DC universe. And Nubia is an amazing character. She is beautiful. She is amazing. She is awesome. We don't need to be told that. <laughs> really, just let her action speak for herself. Give her a good adventure. And unfortunately, the adventure didn't all it. it she was drawn majestically and beautifully. But when you when your only way to prop up a character is to have everyone else in the character act out of character, even Batman, you know, and even Black Adam saying how great she is and even Queen Nubia portraying Nubia like a bitch like as if Black you're going to walk up to Black Adam and Queen Nubia says I'm Queen he calls Black Adam called her Nubia and she said Queen Nubia oh really? what a bitch you know I don't, you don't see you don't see Diana walking around saying princess Diana you know I'm, I'm a princess it's like I thought it was I thought it was just I thought Queen Nubia not only was written bad badly, but everybody fawned over her. Everybody was written out of character to prop up her character to make her feel better. And I thought she came across just very unlikable, straight up. And I just thought, how unfortunate. Uh, but you know, so that's me venting about Nubia. <laughs> and um, was, was and, it Nubia? Was it? Well, I could see. Well, in in defense of Nubia, I get. <laughs> I, I do remember her saying Queen Nubia. Black Adam was being super condescending to her, so I could see her, you know. Well, Black out. Adam was being Black Adam was being Black Adam. Of course, he was being condescending. But then, don't have Black Adam, you know, like retrace his steps. Black Adam was being a jerk, but that's Black Adam. But but yeah, but I'm just saying why she said, you know, call me Queen Nubia. She's trying to put Ooh. him in his place because he's being a he's being a jerk. So I, I didn't mind that necessarily. Well, but, <laughs> yeah. anyway, what about uh, what about uh, Blue Beetle graduation day? Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I didn't, uh, I, I, unfortunately I erased, accidentally erased my thumbnail for that one, but, uh, no, I enjoyed that. I, I thought it was a good uh, for for we we got the movie coming out right uh, with with Blue Beetle and it's sort of good that we're we're getting that we're getting that character back on the on the on the forefront and so I'm 
you know, I, I thought it was, I thought it was good. I would have liked a little bit more of an explanation. I didn't, I'm not, I haven't been a huge follower of Blue Beetle, Beetle uh, J- Jamie Rainus, and I don't really understand his, uh, the, the origin. So I thought it was, um, I still have some questions about his origin. I'm just going to have to go back and Wikipedia it or something like that, or DC Wiki or something. But uh, yeah, or read uh, Infinite Crisis. That's where he he shows up. Yeah, yeah. I have to go way back then. But yeah, but no, no, it's good. I'm, I'm glad. It's nice to see DC have introduce. You know, b- bring that character back because hopefully that movie is going to be. It's the one movie that Zaslav hasn't given the axe to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what about uh, Batgirls? 2022 annual uh well out, out of every single issue of bad girls i've not been a fan of but it was nice to see lady shiva and clue master with them sort of coming back even though not much happened i i i still have some i still wish i still wish it was a different creative team bringing lady shiva back and clue master back into the lives of stephanie brown and cassandra kane but hopefully it'll be done hopefully it'll be done uh it'll be done well Hopefully it'll be done well. I, but because we just, it just ended with Lady Shiva mysteriously appearing. And then I guess next issue we're going to have to see. I hated the Freaky Friday idea. Um, we finally get Cassandra Kane uh, confronting her mother, Clue Master coming on board. Uh, they screwed up, by the way, and Clue Master, Clue Master is actually a, a, alive in this continuity. Brian Bendis screwed up. Uh, Brian Bendis uh, screwed up when Clue Master was dead. He assumed Clue Master was alive during the Young Justice run. He screwed up. But then they undid, they, they fixed that. Clue Master's alive. And then unfortunately, uh, Clune Rads uh, didn't realize that Clue Master was in fact alive. They assumed he was dead. So there's a, that's a screw up on editorial. And that was confirmed by M- uh, Michael W. Conrad uh, on Twitter, which was kind of interesting or in direct messages with uh, another source I know. But in any event, it was a. It is what it is. Uh, it'll be how they deal with Clue Master and Lady Shiva moving forward. We're gonna have to wait and see. But uh, I'm curious. What did, what did you think on, on Batgirls? I can't remember what you said because I listened to your. I thought it was. I thought it was okay. The big thing that struck me was how different it felt. How different the story of Batgirls felt when it doesn't have juvenile art on it. Didn't have Jorge Corona or Neil Gouge. It felt so much more serious. Uh, felt like the art matched up with the story a lot more. That was the biggest takeaway that I had. Yeah. Uh, what about the Nightwing annual? Where we get the origin of Heartless. I, I thought it was. I th- was for some reason I thought it was maybe a little bit tropey, but I liked it. I thought I, I actually I was more fascinated by the the way they juxtapositioned uh, an Alfred an Alfred father figure to Heartless, you know, who just like Alfred, the relationship that Dick Grayson had with Alfred, his sort of like surrogate father, even though, you know, or surrogate grandfather or whatever, the way Heartless had his own sort of mentor, his own sort of butler who helped him. I really thought that worked and I quite enjoyed that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I thought that was, I thought that that worked out uh, quite, quite well. I, I thought it was a nice, it was a nice sort of addition to the, to the mythos there moving forward. Uh, Detective Comics 2022 annual. I know I had some issues with it. I think it uh, was well. Yeah. I, if, if Ram V, all Ram V needed to establish was that in 18th, in 19th century Gotham, all he needed to establish, and he didn't need an entire annual to do it, 
I don't know why he didn't just um, see if I can find it here. I don't know why he didn't just say, look, we had these uh, Tim and Wire Wainwright. They're, they're eventually going to become the Waynes. And then we got Eldridge Pierce, who takes care of their son after the Wainwrights are murdered. And and uh, that's sort of and that occurred around the same time that the Ograms or the Ograms came to Gotham, but eventually left Gotham to return over a century later in the present day storyline. That's really all you need to know. But God damn, was it hard, a hard read. I, I, I found it very hard to read for some reason. I, I hated the language. I hated the dialogue that he gave him, even though it was kind of maybe how they spoke back then. I just thought it was a painful read, a painful read. And I thought it was kind of corny the way they had their like poison eye. Like they're everything, everybody has an analog character. There was even a Batman, like Aldridge Pierce became like a Batman in the in the 19th century. Why would you do that? There's one Batman. There's why have one in the past? I just thought it was dumb. I just thought it was, you know, totally unnecessary. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, and that was my biggest criticism. I'm like, I get what you're trying to do, but you're 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 cheapening Batman even further by doing that. Uh, all right. What about the holiday special, which I thought was good for the most part, but man, that uh, Max Bemis Black Canary story was one of the worst things I've read this year. You mean the the grifter got run over by yeah, a reindeer? Got run over by a reindeer, and it had that Black Canary story where nobody on Earth could do anything but say the word dark side. Right. Uh- <laughs> and it was just walls of text, like yeah. walls of text. Yeah. I was. I, like I was sitting at my desk trying to read it in the middle of the day, like zoning out, falling asleep. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it was a little much. Uh, admittedly, I skim read it. I, I, I just skim read it. And I was thinking that if I'm really Smart. bored over the Christmas holidays, I might actually do a, an actual review of it myself. Or maybe if you and I have a, a drink live stream or something, we'll just go through it as a joke. Uh, I was I was actually thinking of that but because uh but no i i actually don't have an opinion i i never paid as much attention to it uh, although i do laugh when you talk about the dark side i did chuckle at that because it was hard to miss when i was just skim reading it but yeah, yeah you can't not see oh like oh my god i've never seen so much like there's not almost not room for art it's almost a novel there's almost not room for the art uh yeah. what about the wild storm 30th anniversary i i like the wild storm i I liked the Wild Storm 30th anniversary. I liked. I thought it was a good callback to uh, the Wild Storm. Like every story had to do with some aspect of Wild Storm in the last 30 years, and and appropriately so because it's 30. You know, and it was so perfectly named. It's it's so refreshing to see a 30th anniversary issue that actually did exactly what it's advertised to do and that is put celebrate the last 30 years with stories of bringing these stories of these characters from the past and making them relevant to what we know are going to be ongoing stories i i i really enjoyed it that that was um yeah i i mean as far as stories that stand out off the top of my head i had i don't have my notes in front of me i actually i even did notes and prep for uh uh because i read them like two weeks in advance on this thing but uh i I really, I have a feeling with Wildstorm, I feel as, 
optimistic about Wildstorm moving forward because I really liked issue one of Wildstorm by Matthew Rosenberg. I've read issue two already, which we'll be viewing next week. I'm really enjoying it. And I feel between Mark Wade and what Mark Wade is doing with World's Finest and Robin v. Batman, Batman v. Robin and Lazarus Planet and Jeff Johns is doing with Stargirl, The Lost Children and, and uh, The Justice Society. And my third little... DC verse of Wildstorm between those three I'm really happy so I'm not quite happy with other corners of the DC universe but but between Wade Johns and what Rosenberg's doing with Wildstorm and other creators I'm I, I, I was happy with it yeah and that, that brings us to the last book Justice Society had its debut issue what'd you think yeah well I did do an entire video on that uh, I did do an entire video on that uh, and so people can watch that but uh, just to uh, uh, sorry, I'm just looking for the my, my thumbnails here. Uh, I I loved it. I, I've got a bias, man. I just love Jeff John's stories. I, he's firing in all cylinders. I'm I'm absolutely loving the JSA. I, I love the. I don't find it confusing, and I can understand some people. I've you know just on Twitter and just reading different reviews. Some people are a little find that that the time jumps a little wonky. I I found it easy to follow, which is kind of funny because I can get con I get confused at the strangest of times on some stories, and yet when it comes to maybe I'm just tuned in with where Johns is going. But the idea that you know next it's next year in DC time that uh, you know Helena Helena Wayne is born, the daughter of Batman and Selina, and she ends up you know when she's like 25, 30 years old, she ends up having she gets sent back in time because she fails the future JSA, which consists a lot. Of, which consists of a lot of reformed villains, which are kind of unlikable characters, but all those future JSA members, along with Power Girl, uh, get killed by Perdegaton. But the only reason Helena, Helena Wayne... It, I was going to say, is it Perdegaton? We, well, we don't know for sure yet, right? It looks like a younger Perdegaton. It looks like a Perdegaton, yes. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I, want, I just wanted to be sure I didn't miss something that they said it was officially... Uh, uh, no, it's uh, I'm I'm pretty yeah it's it's per Degaton. Uh, if, uh, I'm, I'm I thought he was mentioned by name, but maybe I'll stand to be corrected on that. But I everyone's just assuming it's per Degaton. So if right. if it's not, it will be a it'll be well that'll be a kudos to Johns. It'll be some pretty good uh, misdirection. But everything flows, man. I'm I'm loving uh, as I said in my as I said in my uh, review. I mean, if you're between, you know, read Doomsday Clock, read Flashpoint Beyond, read Stargirl, The Lost Children, and The New Golden Age, and those are really, I mean, these three titles, uh, I mean, if you got Stargirl, the Lost, Children, the Lost Children, The New Golden Age, and Justice Society of America, and I think we're in our own little world here that we could just sit back and enjoy, and, and I've already read The Lost Children, I've read Stargirl, The Lost Children, issue two, which will be coming out, I think, two weeks from now, and that continues to be just great, and really build up the suspense, and like I say, but uh, are you, are you, how do you feel about JSA? Like, I uh, really enjoyed it. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was a, a lot of fun. And I'm very happy with what Johns is doing. I wish he would do more at DC like he used to, but I understand why he doesn't. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. I know we tried to sign off earlier, but I definitely wanted to hear Rocky's thoughts. I, I really missed him last week uh, just because it was such an interesting week with all these anthologies and annuals. So I missed anyway, we really, yeah, we really are signing off now. <laughs> Uh, appreciate okay. you guys joining us and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time catch you later 
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.